An honorable profession is brought to you by Tech for America, an organization dedicated to providing a platform to solve America's toughest public challenges. For more information, visit t4a.org. That's T, the number four, a.org. Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm your host, Ryan Coonerty. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports some of the most thoughtful and innovative voices in American politics. Please check out newdealleaders.org for more information about who these leaders are and what they're doing to save this country from the craziness of Washington, D.C. I also have a favor to ask. If you like what you're hearing, please tell your friends and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It makes a huge difference, and by supporting these conversations, you'll be taking one small step to bringing some sanity back to politics in an insane era. Our first guest of 2019 is West Sacramento Mayor Christopher Cobbledon. Christopher and I talk about his radical and pretty cool ideas to increase public participation, what it's like to come out in your State of the City address, and also being an introvert in the unquiet world of public office. Christopher's been mayor for more than 22 years, and like our other guests, he's a proud New Deal leader. First, I want to talk a little bit about your history and what made you decide to run and what's been the difference between when you first got elected and when you're serving now in terms of how you approach governance. Well, I, I will sometimes lie and tell young people that, that you know, what happened was I was standing on the riverfront one day and the sun came up and I felt divine inspiration to serve my community. But like a lot of people, I entered local government by accident. I had been working in the state legislature on big, important policy, and I didn't care about streets and sewers and stuff like that. You know, somebody else should do that, <laughs> but of course it's important, but it's not for me. The city council was considering a proposal to close the main street that I use to go to work every day at the state capitol. So I got angry about that. And I had... Uh, my Anger is always a great motivator yes, for politics. Yes, it was. So I started paying attention. And... Uh, my, my realtor, when I bought my house in the city, had told me of all these grand plans that were happening, because that's what realtors do, and none of them were happening, not a single one. So there was a push and a pull in terms of a sense that uh, there was a lot more possible there that wasn't happening, and then this one issue that was the, the kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. And that led me into into run. I ran very young as a, in the city. I was the first person to run, really, that hadn't either grown up in the city or married somebody that had grown up there. And thinking, I just want to run for two years and uh, you know, fix a few things, make sure that road doesn't get cul-de-sac, and then I'm done. I can return to big, important things like foreign policy and fixing education statewide. So, but you've stuck with it. So, uh, so, and also, I think you were the first minority elected uh, to your city, if I'm correct. The, we, the, the, the city only incorporated in 1987. I was first elected to city council in 1996. And that election, two of us, two Filipinos were elected in a city, with, I think, that had five Filipinos in it. <laughs> there was no Filipino community, per se. And there had been so one... did you le- split the F- Filipino vote? <laughs> well, I, 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 you could vote for two. <laughs> okay. So I think we probably had a fair amount of overlap. Uh, and one Latino had been elected previously, but it was still, a, uh, at that time, it was, it was, it was uh, the council I joined was all men. It had mostly been all men. 
and uh, there had been very little minority representation um, on the council. That's changed now. In the last, uh, for about the last 15 or 18 years, uh, we've had most of the time either 40 or 60 percent of the council members have been people of color, Latinos and Asians. And uh, now we have a female majority. I'm LGBT, so it's we've become what might be the most diverse city council in 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 a in a wide geography. I know certainly in the Sacramento region. So you were planning on serving for two years, keeping the street open, and then walking away. What what's made you stay for another two decades? So I realized uh, two things. One was just like street level retail politics. That when I was like campaigning for the for for city council and then for mayor, unlike when I had been campaigning for other candidates for the state legislature, and no offense to state legislators, no. When I was knocking on doors, nobody understood what the state legislature was. I remember very clearly I was knocking on door. You know, about that time in the Olympic period, and and half the voters were asking me about what the you know about the Nancy Kerry. In Tanya Harding incident. When I was running for city council and mayor, voters of all kinds of backgrounds and neighborhoods were asking me things about, you know, is this the right time to be bond financing the new pool? Um, you, don't you think too much money is going into the redevelopment um, agency through tax increment financing? People were having real discussions. And so this idea that the city level was where real civic discussion, where informed, educated, engaged citizenry happened, uh, was really profound to me. And then the second was I started to discover that, okay, I wanted to, I, 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 you could either work in the Capitol trying to write a law that, that, made, that banned suburban sprawl, or at the city level, I realized, you know, by, if I just changed the fees that a, that a sewer hookup is for somewhere out in, the, in, the, in nowhere in a greenfield versus what it is in the infill areas, I could dramatically affect real things on the ground through these kind of hidden tools um, in the box that nobody seemed to be uh, realize that were there, and that was much faster and more effective um, uh, than kind of the big picture policy. So the, the local government captured me both from its ability to get things done and also to the ability to engage people. And to see and to see your work come to life, come to fruition right on the ground. That's right. So, uh, so you talked about the public engagement when you're going door to door. Um, as we both know, that public engagement tends to fall off when it comes to city council meetings and public participation. And you made a uh, what I thought was a brilliant insight at, I think, South by Southwest talking about this topic, saying that public participation tends to neither be public nor real participation. And so you've been thinking about how to engage people differently. Can you talk a little bit about both what you see as the problem from your time in office, and then also what you see as potential solutions? Yeah, we have a very curious 20th century civic engagement mindset, which, which I think we mostly take as religion around around public hearings, uh, you know, several hearings, community workshops, what have you. And when I got elected to the city council, that was my first thing. I'm like, okay, nobody's coming to our meetings. There's no one in this room, so we need to go meet in the neighborhoods. We need to meet more often. You know, I was a punk kid and had, you know, really just wanted to keep meeting and, and take the meetings out on, on the road. And we took in the meetings out on the road. People came, but they didn't come a second time. And I just thought, gosh, but our budget's so important and the general plan is so important. Zoning's so important. Where are they? And then one day, um, the county supervisor said, yeah, we have the same problem at the county. And I thought, I've never been to a county supervisor's meeting. Uh, but that doesn't mean I'm disenfranchised. Uh, it's just, you know, I'll, I'll let them know if there's a problem, but I, I, I can't go to their meeting and my meeting. And of course, there's also the school board meetings and the Mosquito District meetings and the Reclamation District board meetings. There's too much, uh, you know, fr- from the perspective of a single government agency, it's like everyone should be engaging in my thing. It's a bit of government narcissism. <laughs> when for citizens, they're like, look, I got, I, I, my daughter needs to be tutored in algebra on Tuesday nights. And, and you know, I, I, I want to watch uh, So You Think You Can Dance on 
Thursdays. I mean, I have I have my own life. I don't exist as your engagement tool. So it's not surprising that folks don't engage. And uh, the way that we do government decisions isn't generally a single decision point anyway. So it's not like I can go to a city council meeting as a citizen and really have an impact on just one night because that apartment project that I maybe I hate or love um, that's about to get built. And well, by the time I know about it, it's already been issued a building permit. I can't do anything about it. If I come two weeks later, I can complain. But the city council at that point's already, they voted on it when they issued the bonds for it. They voted on it when they did the zoning. They voted on it when they did the mellow, the financing district. They vote, they've already voted on it a hundred times. The chances that I'm going to affect that are pretty much zero. So, and the council gets resentful because we said, look, we had all those where meetings. Where were you? We had all these meetings. You had your three minutes to get up there and talk. And now it's, now it's too late. But, but in actuality, for the reasons you said, there's, it was too complex for one, for a person to sort of navigate. That's right. It's it's this this fiction that there's this singular decision that exists, and especially when you when it comes to things that people really care about, not the kind of manufactured issues that we make up. Like, okay, here's the here I'm sending mailing out the notice. We're considering changing the zoning in order to require a floor area ratio of 12.4 instead of 12.2. Please come to my meeting to give me your opinion about which you'd never even thought about before. That's not the essentials. What the essential is 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 understanding from from citizens do you want this neighborhood to be you know walkable with grandma living near, nearby and a cafe in it um, or do you want it to be quiet with no no outsiders and you just want to be able to where the kids can play in the street without worrying I mean, there are different flavors of place that we never except in general plans these like master plan processes we never engage the citizens in that and uh, so we ask them they say yeah I want I want a walkable downtown where things are close, we can live together, it's a mixed income place, whatever. Then after that, every week we ask them all the, all the, the, the um, what I call the cheesecake issues, which are, now, now do you want to have an apartment complex? Ooh, no, no, that's, I, I don't want crowding. Do you want to have, I, we, uh, is it okay if we get rid of the, the, the free parking and widen the sidewalks? Oh, no, 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 I want, to par- I want to be able to drive right up to whatever cafe there is. All the decisions, all the actions that are needed to achieve that walkable downtown or, or grandma living nearby or mixed income neighborhood most of them are things that we don't naturally want to do and uh and so the reason i describe it as cheesecake is the government is some sense like weight watchers where uh, we kind of have a compact that we are going to agree not to do the things that our animal instincts want us to do like oppose apartment buildings right um and demand free parking in order to achieve the more important goal that we really do care about so the civic engagement process tends to both be broken in the sense that it doesn't produce real results, it, it kind of um, um, hobbles government from accomplishing anything, right? Because you, you, you say you're going to create a mixed income walkable downtown and you don't because you also then rejected the apartment. So nothing happened at all. Government's trust in, uh, citizens' trust in government diminishes as a result and their uh, confidence and their willingness to participate and vote goes down. It's actually some interesting research that shows that um, tradi- the uh, civic engagement through hearings and public meetings, and that sort of thing, is inversely correlated with voting. So essentially people have a certain amount of attention that they're willing to devote to this process. And so if we demand that they spend their time in community workshops and charrettes and all that other sort of thing, um, that there are very few people who do both. And our, our, our intuition has always been if we could just, if we could get people excited about government, they'll vote even more. 
And uh, so, uh, so, so there's a lot of challenges with this issue, and, the, and most of them um, are very disproportionate in terms of their impacts on equity, because the folks who can come to meetings, who have access, who can understand the difference between a floor area ratio of 12.4 and 12.2 and what that really means, is a not representative sample. So huge problems with this, with the, the traditional ways that we do civic engagement with. I think most people intuitively do get, but, they, but we've, we, we've been programmed to believe that's the only way to do things. I think... We need to do a better job of understanding and sensing kind of on a, uh, the other signals that, that voters are sending to uh, and citizens send in the same way that Amazon or Netflix or others are, are trying to figure out, like, based on what your behavior and the choices that you're doing, what, it, what is that saying about what your needs are, what your pain points are? And, uh, and, uh, and then what do you really want for your community at, the, at the, that walkable, uh, you know, mixed income, neighbor, grandma lives nearby kind of place? That, we ought to be focused on delivering that um, as opposed to uh, the mechanical uh, issues underneath. That requires different forms of engagement, though. So one of the things that we're experimenting, which is, it's funny, but it's also kind of a marker of what we're doing. It, it, our, our, its working title is called Cinder. It's basically, okay, instead of asking you floor area ratio and zoning codes and all that stuff, uh, once in a while where you have to come for 17 to public hearings for three hours each and give us your two minutes of testimony, if you're if, if you on your phone, you'd have an app that's kind of you know, and, and it's and it's got a beacon in it, so that as you're as you're approaching a location um, in the city, an empty lot or otherwise, a picture comes up of something that could be there. It's not necessarily an actual proposal, but it comes up, a picture comes up, and you just swipe left or right on it. Like, for this location, I like that or I don't like that, right? Um, It's a casual, frequent, low-stress, low-engagement, low-cognitive load way of engaging. Now, the picture you see might be different from the picture I see, and we'll be seeing different kinds of pictures with enough of that of those pictures, the key is that we're encoding information in each of those photos. So instead of asking you, the citizen, what do you think about floor area ratio of 12.8, 12.8 floor area ratio is encoded in that photo as opposed to a different photo. So we're trying to derive your your policy preferences based on your on something that you do know about, which is I like the way that looks, um, but not assigning any single thing as being so high stakes that you feel like you have to study for it or whatever, but it's just casual, frequent, you can do it while you're waiting for the bus so it's an experiment that we've been uh, uh, that we're testing to try to, uh, to to figure out different ways of using technology and engagement um, that give us give us what we really need and also give citizens a lower stress, higher impact, higher meaning um, impact on on uh, on the way that we deliver and design services in the community. And do you have any early indications as to whether people like it? What people are saying? For the the city to build the app has been a chal- more of a challenge than we, we you might than we we might have expected at the beginning, and we've been getting a lot of uh, partners and others engaged, and and other cities who've actually picked up on this. Santa Monica heard the idea, I think, actually at South by Southwest, and they they built an app called City Swipe, um, which is similar in concept, but theirs is essentially a way to vote, um, and we're and we are interested less in opinion um, about policy issues than we are about the underlying. Um, dispositions and aspirations in the community. There are other tools that are out there that, that you know, other tests that have been done where folks are wearing something, not a Fitbit or an Apple Watch, but, but that have um, the skin sensors on them that can detect stress levels where, where folks are then, where that data is then used by the city, anonymized, it's not connected to the person, but to note, you know, to look at safe routes to school issues or, you know, where, you know, where in the city do people not feel safe? So there, we have to do a better job as government as sensing and hearing and seeing the information that, that residents are already sending 
but that we're just not seeing because our tradition has been to insist that residents communicate with us in very specifically in our language on our issues and on our timeframes. Interesting. So it seems as though the approach is both trying to pick up on behavior and but then also you've talked about the importance of sort of asking more open-ended questions that that in fact we in government we tend to peep yes this project or no this project but instead of talking about the bigger picture which may have impacts can you talk about some of the open-ended questions that you when you're out walking the streets uh sitting in coffee shops or in community meetings that you're asking your constituents that you think is, is giving you a better better insights as a leader well, so one of the, this is actually uh, the city across the river from mine, Sacramento, did a great job of their one of their regional, recent planning processes where um, they, rather than asking planning questions, they would ask questions like, tell, uh, you know, tell me about your, your the, the best day you had um, in this pr- particular part of town. So it's open, it's not completely open in it, but it's it's trying to evoke what are the things about that place that make it, make it distinctive and special. So you're asking questions that are, that feel human and that are directly around like, what can only you tell me as a resident? So um, uh, I think that kind of open-ended question is, is really critical. One of the other, the other pilots that we've been doing is um, uh, social media spidering, basically. And uh, uh, West Sacramento, Paris, France, and 11 cities in Israel have been working with a startup that- A lot of similarities. <laughs> yes, all, all, yeah, all quite similar. Um, with a startup that basically uh, looks at public um, Facebook and Facebook groups um, and tweets and the the sorts of stuff that's not in you and my, my our personal Facebook accounts, but that's public information, um, and it's in our complaint system and on Nextdoor, that Nextdoor public pages, and so it's spying through them and then uses AI to determine like what are what are key trends, um, what are what are hotspots of issues, um, and that's really interesting and open ended to us because often people are interested in things that we didn't know about um, and we would never know to ask in the first place and so we've been using that to hear hear signals that the that, that citizens are are directly sending because they're posting them on twitter to be seen by somebody hopefully uh, many people have like five followers but we wouldn't normally know that because we're not following them but this kind of technology allows us to see it without being in their business to get a sense of sentiment in the city and uh, both the hot spots and and other issues and we've been using it for um Lately, for homelessness, because one of our challenges with homelessness, our homeless population has been declining, but concern, perception of the homeless population has been growing. It's only been declining by a slight amount, so I don't want to I don't want to overstate it. But um, the but what we've noticed is a disconnect between public perception and worry anxiety about homelessness and the actual incidence of homelessness in the city. Um, and so we, at first we were just trying strategies to just keep reducing homelessness even more, which, we, which we're doing for other reasons, like mainly public health and safety. But at the same time, we want our residents to not have that level of anxiety and fear um, and worry. So, so the sentiment analysis allows us to understand, okay, if we do this intervention that, that, uh, you know, that removes a homeless camp, does it increase or reduce the felt a worry about homelessness. In addition to, does it achieve the re, you know the reduction of this many individuals who are homeless? And so, um, it's 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 really interesting work. There are not very many places in the country that are that are really in this space. But I think um, civic engagement is ripe for complete reinvention. So many other folks, whether it's whether it's Tinder or Amazon, who have a much more a much clearer business interest in getting it right. 
are doing radically different things than what we do in, in, in city government, even though our, our expressed intention is to reach and represent all citizens. Absolutely. You talked about citizens talking about things that, that maybe aren't on your radar. You, you put forward a home run initiative, which is you know, uh, early childhood interventions and college savings accounts, job training programs and internships and in college. That's not traditionally the work of a city, right? The city, as you mentioned, is sewers and police and that sort of thing. Can you talk a little bit about how you see that fitting in with your mission and why you're, why you're taking on those responsibilities or that, those opportunities as well? Yeah, the, uh, it is the case for most mayors in the country that we don't have any legal or formal governance authority over our schools. And yet, both our, our, the voters uh, and our private sector partners and college partners all expect us to solve, solve those problems. So my city has had, had a tradition of um, big achievement gap, somewhat low-performing schools, um, and the, the consequences of that are we, we have the, one of the largest job bases in, in our region. We have more jobs than people, including children and retired folks, and we have almost enough jobs for the dogs, too. I mean, we have a <laughs> lot of jobs, and yet we've always had one of the highest unemployment rates in the region. So adding more jobs does not reduce our unemployment rate. Um, it's the skills mismatch that's really critical and the degree and the certification mismatch. So, uh, you know, if, if we're to continue to rise as a city, the whole city has to, has to do that. And if we're going to attract high quality jobs, then we have to have uh, a workforce that's capable and that can benefit from the jobs that we're, that we're growing. So um, it's been a strong business case in the city. We have designed our work though uh, carefully not to be too directly involved with the school district. And this is just a lesson I've learned in 20, 20 plus years in office. The first several years, you know, trying to, trying to you know, work with the school board or change the school board or do other sorts of things to you know, really you know, fix education in this, in this city, um, that uh, was, it's just beyond my power and, and probably, my, my, uh, probably my, 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 my pay scale for sure and, and, my, and, my, and my talent level. So instead, what we've done through the home run is a series of pieces that are interconnected um, from cradle to career, none of which live inside the schools. The, the formal school. So preschool, well, that's occurring before the, the child enters the school system. The college savings account is us and a and a and a uh, investment fund provider. Uh, internships are us and the private sector and public sector employers. Digital badges that we're growing with other cities in the country are also outside of the school schoolhouse. And then a free community college and um, and community service based scholarships are also outside of the school. But they're all connected to the school. So our our concept is one that it's cradle to career, fully integrated and connected with each other, but also that that residents in our city will see that Westac is a place to be if you're raising a family, which we have not always been seen. You know, I've heard from plenty of parents like, my daughter's about to turn five, we might have to move to Davis or to El Grove or some other city in the region, um, or my kid's entering high school, and so now I've got to go somewhere else. We, we've got to fix that. So part of our purpose is to increase confidence in local education opportunities for kids so that kids and parents who, who are ready to do the work for great education will stay and help in, continue to improve our schools. And it's working. The home run itself is only a couple of years old, but the sense of possibility and education and expectation in the city has been pr- um, profoundly affected by a, a pretty small 
financial investment by the city. Because you're absolutely right. I mean, our in, in the end of the day, we're, we're judged by what's the crime rate? What's our insur- fire insurance rating? Does this toilet flush? Does water come out of the kitchen tap? Um, are there hypodermic needles in the park? I mean, they're, they're, we're judged by the city's core work. We have to get that right. Um, but with a smart design, a city can, can with with little resources, really have a significant impact on, on the education workforce pipeline and the, and the landscape of opportunity. I think it's a real model and we're looking into it. We're just south of you and we're looking into it following, following your model for those exact reasons. I want to just talk a little bit about you. So uh, you mentioned that, uh, that you're LGBTQ uh, represented, um, but when you first ran for mayor, you weren't out yet. And then you came out to your city and by all accounts, it was well received and and it meant a lot to, to people in the community, especially uh, LGBT people in your community. But then a, two years later, your city votes uh, as a population for Prop 8, which limited your right to marry. We've since reversed course, and hopefully we're in a new stage in our history. But can you talk a little bit about that experience of being an out gay man in a community that may or may not be embracing your rights? Yeah, I actually think it's a real. It's a, I mean, it's been a great, a, a profound journey, and that that journey, with all the twists and turns, have been. I, I think offers some important lessons for, um, for progressives around uh, helping and leading that journey for for your constituents, right? Because yeah, when I first when I first ran for city council and then for mayor in the mid '90s, um, Westac was a, a solidly democratic city because of, of the port and the industrial operations, so the, the labor unions and what have you. But but in terms of environmental and social issues, not at all. Um, and uh, I think in, in, my, in my very first interview with the firefighters union, you know, they asked me for my wallet. And I thought, well, I, I came here to get money from you to, yeah. <laughs> to run for the campaign. And uh, they gave me the wallet back and said, it's okay, guys, there's no, there's no gay card and no Sierra Club card. And uh, which, uh, 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 it wasn't a shock to me because that's what I expected politics was going to be like. So it was not, there, there was no option to come out. It was just, I, I either, and I didn't want to live a secret life. So I decided, um, I, I didn't even, at that point, I barely even really knew or understood or accepted that I was gay myself. That kind of closed the door on that. So you, if I'm going to be mayor of the city, I have to forget forget having any of that kind of personal life whatsoever. So I did, in the, and then in 2006, uh, a lot had changed, uh, mostly inside me. The community, it was hard to tell. Um, and uh, so I decided to come out. Um, I had watched a show on uh, MTV's Logos ne- Logo Network about coming out and uh, late at night, at, like at midnight. And I watched it, and I think it was like a community college professor came out. And at the end of it, uh, it there was a thing and saying, do you have a coming out story? You know, send us an email at, you know, coming out stories at mtv.com. And it was like one in the morning at this point, and I'm this very cathartic. So I, I write them a note, I'm going to come out. I'm just deciding this right now and send it off to them thinking, you know, it's just going to go into some bundle. And um, uh, within a couple of days, they had moved into my house to film <laughs> this process. Um, and I came out in the state of the city address, and I was sweating, um, and I really did not know what was going to happen, um, given the kind of the cultural conservativeness of the of the community. And uh, it, uh, uh, and then I was on the ballot a couple of months later. When I came out, the the the, the reaction was uh, varied, <laughs> as you would expect, because it's a diverse community, and this is 2006. Um, but the majority of folks, I think, were in the I'm not sure what I think about that, or I don't like that, but you do a good job. He does a good job. And uh, so I'm not sure, actually, I would have won election 
you know, right out of the box. It was that I had a record at that point um, that that told some told folks something different about me than just that I was a gay dude. Um, so I won I won that election in 2006, and then 2008 the, I was on the ballot again because my term was only two years. And uh, the voters voted overwhelmingly for me and by a reasonably healthy margin uh, for Proposition 8. And, uh, but by a margin, I think, that would have been larger earlier. I, you could see the journey that was happening even, even then. But yeah, it was, a, it was definitely a moment where you're thinking, so voters are com- they're totally comfortable with me making decisions about you know, their life, health and safety, you know, their, their, the levees that protect them against floods and the police department or whatever. But it's not okay for me to make decisions about who I can marry. That's, that, but but uh, uh, I had also noticed that by coming out, for a lot of folks in the city, I was the only gay person that they, that they, that they knew. And even if they didn't know me, and so they were going through the journey, and they were asking. People started to ask me questions about, you know, what, uh, you know, what is this like? What is it true that gay people do this? You know, whatever. It was, it, I was their gay confidant to fifty thousand people, and uh, so you could see people taking that journey. But you had to accept that they were going to be on a journey. That you couldn't just snap your fingers, and that they were going to change, and that litmus tests could be applied to them. That we all have. You know issues where we're constantly evolving, and uh, I think today Proposition Eight would obviously go go down in flames <laughs> in in West Sac. But um, it's been it's and one of the things I'm, I'm I'm really proud of because that that moment of decision, you know, that Saturday night led to a process that both made uh, changed the people of my community uh, for the better, and they would all say that, but also changed me because I I became a much more personal, open. Um, public official than I had been before. When you're trying to hide uh, kind of the essential of who you are, it affects the way you you treat everything and how empathic you are and all of that. And so um, uh, I think I heard from many many constituents for years after that. You're just you're a more approachable, personable, trustworthy person than you were before. Interesting. And it's 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 interesting because we often talk about how much the voters trust the elected official, but the elected official has to trust their constituents, right? And that's often hard because there's so many and you often hear from the ones that are yelling the most but it's it's amazing that you had a long-term long-term enough vision of a relationship with your community that you trusted them to to not overnight but on a journey to to come to to recognize um, who you are i want to ask you your predecessor described you as an introverted brainiac um and um the second part of that should be obvious from the conversations we've had but the introverted part i think a lot of people think that in order to run for office they need to be an extrovert they need to be a glad hander the people who's working work in the room at parties you aren't and yet you've succeeded with your community for for so long can you talk a little bit about what it means to to be introverted or to appreciate solitude but also be an elected official yeah, I think it's it's so important because you, you, the politicians you see on TV, are, you know, whether they're U.S. senators or governors or whatever, they I mean they've gotten to that point, uh, and they are on TV because that media outlet has chosen them for their ability to be bombastic and and all of that. And, but you do not have to be that in local government in particular. And uh, I I had no intention of ever running um, for office at all. Because I'm an introvert, and because I, you know, I like the behind-the-scenes work. I was working in the legislature, just going to support other people for a long time, and it it it, it certainly.
certainly gets easier as you do more of it. Um, but it but it hasn't changed fundamentally. I don't I don't I don't I don't see a room of you know a hundred or two hundred people and look and and you know start rubbing my hands together with excitement that you know this is my chance to go you know have very quick episodic interactions <laughs> with all of these people. It's not natural. Uh, you know I'd rather just sit down with a few of you. Let's have a real conversation. Um, uh, but the extent to which you're approaching it with a sense of authenticity, the, inter- the interactions that you are having, that they are real, that you're listening, that you care, and that you're acting on that uh, makes makes much more of a difference. And there are plenty of other introverts um, who are scared of or intimidated by you know the, the you know the radical extroverts who, <laughs> who are you know with their hand out, um, and and uh, the the full range of people in the community need to be represented. So. Uh, I have become more comfortable about it for sure, um, but it's still not my natural go-to uh, way of, of making my way through the world. And and I, 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 I wish, and when I'm recruiting folks to run for office in, in the local community in West Sacramento, this is constantly one of the things that I you know I have to deal with. They're, they're, they're like, they're, they, they, that's not who I am. I'm not a politician. Well, sure you are, <laughs> right? Um, because a politician is really about do you, do you care about people and do you, do you want to do the hard work? And are you willing to listen? You know, are you willing to study? I mean, do you have the right? You know, are you going to be here ten years from now? I mean, they're 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 much more important things than do you feel comfortable in a crowd or do you love giving speeches to three hundred people? So, all you uh, podcast listeners. Uh, listening with your earbuds in somewhere so you don't have to make conversation with people. Uh, you just he- heard it. The mayor uh, says uh, you're more than qualified and you need to run for office. Um, thank you. Thank you for joining us today, Christopher. It's been great to talk with you. And uh, thank you for uh, not only leading in West Sacramento, but showing us the way on so many of these issues for so many other communities across the country. Ryan, thanks so much. An Honorable Professions, a New Deal podcast an organization dedicated to supporting innovative policymakers and ideas. Check out newdealleaders.org slash ideas for policies you can bring to your community. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders and keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Road Group produced this podcast. I'm Ryan Coonerty, and because we're keeping things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast. 